Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Before we start, I want to share that I struggled about breaking this episode into two parts. However, the story of the Congo government and country issues ties into another story involving a missionary doctor that was killed during this time period. Though I could have told these stories separately, I felt it would be more impactful by keeping them together since they are intertwined. The Congo. The country has quite a story from exploitation to wars to political instability to tragedy. In part one of this series on the history of Congo, We learned about how Belgium was formed, gained independence, and how King Leopold II finagled his way to getting full personal control of the Congo Free State. We heard about how he exploited the people for ivory and rubber, killing and maiming millions of Congolese for the benefit of his personal bank account. A horrible, dark period indeed. Then, how public and political dissent turned on him, resulting in Belgium taking over in 1908 as his colony. We then heard about the colonization of the country for over 50 years, where mining and industry thrived, the village unit was disrupted, urbanization became prevalent, and literacy rose. Then, in the late 1950s, unrest became a factor, as many other colonies throughout Africa were gaining independence, and Congo wanted theirs. A hastily developed plan was implemented, and within four months, the transition began. Independence Day was June 30, 1960. The common Congolese certainly hoped for freedom, democracy, self-respect, independence, rule of law, and an ongoing improvement to their condition for this newly formed country. Rather, the start of the first five years of its existence, called the First Republic, did not yield any of that. And that period of Congo's history is the topic of part two of the series on the history of Congo. The First Republic This is what they call the initial five years of Congo's independence. Dreams of all things positive were completely shattered. It was a disaster, to say the least. Before you judge my description too hastily, listen to the unfortunate summary of the first few years of Congo, then you decide. Kasavubu was elected president. Lumumba was elected prime minister. The party celebrating independence lasted for four days. Then things started to unravel. Within a week, the army started to mutiny. The army saw the parliament vote themselves raises and former civil servants were named to top government positions. They didn't like that. Lumumba tried to stop the unrest in the army. He gave everyone a promotion in rank. Yet he failed miserably to quell the discord. So one week into its infancy, the country didn't have a functioning army. The locals began to turn on the remaining Belgians in the country, jeering, threatening, spitting, and the like. So many Belgians had already decided to get out of Dodge. Then the Belgian women started getting raped, leading to further evacuation of the Europeans. They estimate 30,000 people left in the following weeks. Cars, homes, businesses, plantations, money, all just left in the panic to save their skins. 
think about all that intellectual capital, poof, gonzo, that impacted the economy as nothing could get exported, rubber, coffee, cotton, and the like. Furthermore, all the employees of these businesses were now unemployed. Not what a fledgling country needed for sure. Some folks were murdered. Belgians sent in their troops, and chaos continued to ensue. By mid-July, Congo cut diplomatic ties with Belgium and contacted Moscow, Russia to intervene. Wow, this turned up the political heat in the then-simmering Cold War between the West and communism. By September 1960, Joseph Mobutu, the former secretary of Patrice Lumumba, and now a colonel in the army, with the CIA's support, declared the army would seize control of the country's government. This would be his first coup d'etat. Kasavubu remained the figurehead president, and Mobutu put Lumumba under house arrest. Lumumba asked for protection from the UN, and a few months later was flown to the Katanga province. It was January 17, 1962. Upon landing, Lumumba and his two associates were beaten. They were taken outside of town and executed. All three were buried. The murders were kept quiet for a time. Later, the bodies were dug up, sawed up, and dumped in a vat of sulfuric acid to wipe out the evidence. The world obviously reacted negatively, as Lumumba was very popular in Congo. Then, the Kasai province and Katanga province decided to secede. Mercenaries were involved, and the army went to go put down the rebellions. The UN also got involved. It was a total mess. Chombe, he hired mercenaries to defend Katanga. The UN went in and tried to broker peace. By January 1963, the secession was over. Chombe was sent to exile. What an absolute political roller coaster. Thus, the third act of the First Republic began, and only two players remained, Kasavubu and Mobutu. Kasavubu was president and had reunited the country while Mobutu had not succeeded in quashing the Katanga Rebellion, as the UN had been the predominant force there. Lumumba was dead, and Chombe was in exile. So Kasavubu worked to decentralize the government, giving more power to the provinces and the people. He recognized the numerous tribes and ethnic reality of this vast country. He hobbled the parliament, and as president, he reigned supreme over the prime minister and the government. He was sitting pretty. He had spread power amongst the many provinces and was ruling over the parliament from Leopoldville. I think they call that divide and conquer. Unfortunately, defiance started to show up with some in the government. They influenced the peasants to revolt, much out of the communist playbook. Rebel groups were formed and cities taken over. One group was the Simbas. Simba means lion in Swahili. Down south, the Russians were influencing a one Laurent Kabila to recruit boy soldiers. They dealt with magic and fetishes to convince these soldiers they couldn't be killed. To wit, they believed if someone shot a bullet at them, that it would turn into water when it hit them. Thus, they wouldn't die. In May 1964, they took over two large cities, humiliating President Kasavubu and Colonel Mobutu of the army. Then Chombe returned from exile and joined on as prime minister. Huh? Once an enemy, now part of the group? Go figure. The Simbas pressed on to Stanleyville, a major city on the Congo River. By now, they'd taken over one-third of the country and were pressing onward for half the country. They were nearing Bumba, a major port on the Congo River. The Europeans and Americans tracked what they could about the rebels advancing, while the UN sent troops to provide safety 
and stability and monitoring. Meanwhile, in the U.S., my parents were commissioned to leave for service in Congo to teach in the missionary boarding school. However, due to the unrest in Congo, the mission board instructed them to stay put in the U.S., which they did for a full year before going to Congo. I spent the second year of my life sitting in Florida, not in Congo. But there were many folks already living and working in Congo at that time that were fearful of the advancing rebel group. Here is one story of a missionary couple and their children evacuating from Bumba, a town on the Congo River, just hours ahead of the rebels. It was the summer of 1964. I was three months old. My sister was two and a half. Our family lived at Bumba, where my father was building a church. We knew that rebel forces were advancing, but we didn't know their exact location. We often had UN troops stay at our house, and in the evening they would take a map out, put it on the dining room table, and ask mom and dad where missionaries were in the area, and would try to determine how long uh, we had before we should leave Bumba in order to, uh, to be safe. Leaving Bumba meant at least a 14-hour trip to Kerala with a pickup truck. Again, Dad was trying to finish the church at Bumba under these circumstances, knowing that our safety was important, but also trying to work as long as he could. He came home one day, I believe it was August 18th, and he told my mom that it was time to go. So he had paid all of the workers, and they packed up the truck, packed up the belongings that they were going to take with them, and we left for Kerwa at 1 a.m. Imagine driving through the jungle with no street lights, my mom having me on her lap, my sister on the seat of the pickup between mom and dad, driving through the jungle, the only lights really are the lights of the pickup shining ahead. We left at 1 a.m., and when we got to Kerawa, we heard on the radio that Bomba had fallen to rebel soldiers, and at 11 a.m., they came to our house and were looking for us. So it was just a matter of a few hours, 10 hours, where we, we could have very easily been uh, captured by rebel soldiers. But the amazing part about this story is that in the middle of the night, probably 2 or 3 a.m., we're driving through the jungle, and Mom and Dad both looked at each other and said, we waited too long because the lights of the pickup ahead of them shone on a number of soldiers, heavily armed soldiers, that were blocking the road. And they realized that we had waited too long. But there was no option for Dad, so he just kept driving. And as he kept driving, those heavily armed soldiers just dissipated into uh, the African sky. And mom and dad have told us this story many times. I believe it was August 18th, 1964, that they told us that those were guardian angels that were guarding their path 
as they left Bumba to drive to Kerwa, that uh, 14-hour trip. That was James Edstrom, a childhood friend of mine, recounting the story of his mom and dad, Cully and Vivian Edstrom, and James and his sister Mary Beth, narrowly avoiding capture by the Simba rebels. So with the advancement of the rebels, mercenaries were signed up, the U.S. provided equipment and troops, and they were brought in to wage war against these magic-believing Simba rebels. The Simbas got their butts kicked and then decided to capture hundreds of Europeans still in the area as hostages. They imprisoned them in Stanleyville. They threatened to kill them all. The prisoners were held for several months. Then they were moved to the Victoria Hotel in Stanleyville to act as their prison. Then, President Lyndon Johnson decided to provide equipment and support to Belgian soldiers to attempt a rescue of the imprisoned expatriates. On the morning of November 24, 1964, 343 Belgian commandos were dropped in by parachute to rescue the hostages. About 2,000 were freed and evacuated on 14 C-130 cargo planes. Unfortunately, 144 people were killed during the operation. It was big news throughout the world. The goings-on in Congo had been headlining the news for months. This was a major test of communism versus Western democracy. Of all the prisoners held for so long and then ultimately freed, it was actually one of them who was killed that became the face of the hostages and rebellion in Congo. He was Dr. Paul Carlson, a Christian missionary doctor from Southern California. Here is his story. Dr. Carlson and his wife Lois and two children, Wayne and Lynette, went to Congo to serve in a small hospital at a mission station called Wasolo in 1963. This station was very distant from the others and was approximately 17 miles from the Ubangi River that separated Congo from the Central African Republic. For many months, Dr. Carlson and his wife Lois, a nurse, worked in the hospital, serving hundreds of people every day with their medical needs, performing surgeries, and the like. During their tenure, a doctor serving part of his residency came from the U.S. to Asolo and worked alongside Dr. Carlson. Life magazine heard about this and sent a photographer to capture the images and story of this local boy turned jungle doctor. The photographer took hundreds of photos of the young doctor, the hospital, the mission work, and Dr. Paul Carlson. Later, these photos would be plastered on virtually every newspaper and television throughout the world. News started to come about the advancing Simba rebels. Finally, the U.S. ambassador notified all Americans that it was time to get out of the country for their safety. Paul had been down country, as I recall, and uh, we, we knew that there, was, there were problems in par- parts of Congo, but most of them were, you know, way at the head, other end from where, from where we were. And besides, we were at Wasolo, which we always thought was the... Nobody ever comes to Wasolo because it was so far away. And so he'd been down country and uh, went for it. He was on his way back, and he had been finding out as he was farther south in the in the country that things were getting worse, much worse than what we had anticipated. So then we came back <laughs> to Wasolo, and so we listened to the radio usually morning and evening. I mean, we broadcast and then had, but I think we did it more often for a few days there and found out that things were really getting pretty pretty tight and the, the rebels were moving on. 
and uh, coming closer to, to the area. And, but we didn't think, still didn't think that they'd come up to the Wasolo area. That was Lois Carlson Bridges, Dr. Carlson's wife. She's living in a retirement home outside of San Diego, California. I was able to meet with her in person several times as I prepared this episode to hear her tell the story in her words from her perspective. After they got the news, the family had to leave Wasolo to cross the Ubangi River to safety in the Central African Republic. It was September 4th, 1964. Anyway, what happened then, we decided it was time to be ready to go. So we did pack, uh, you know, a grab-and-go type thing. And our Jody, our nurse, who was very familiar with the area because she's worked there for years, had made arrangements with a village across the river. And we had to go through Yakoma, which was at the, at the river, and... Uh, take a, um, a dugout canoe from there. Paul helped us get, a, get across and get settled. Dr. Carlson went back after getting the family situated as he'd done surgery on several patients. He assured his family that he had an escape route to the river and that being a doctor and being so far from the rebels, the chances were low of anything bad happening. Paul had done some surgery on, I know it was at least two or three People that apparently was quite serious surgery, and he felt that if he didn't take care of them, they probably would not make it. So he he decided to go back to the Wasolo Hospital, which was about maybe 15 miles from Yakoma, 15 20 miles, something like that. I think he came back on Sunday to see us at the at that village, and then went back. And he said, he said, I'll come back, back and stay on Tuesday. Well, in that time, the rebels came. Unfortunately, the rebels came to Wasolo on September 18th and blocked his escape route. They shot several key people in the hospital and captured Dr. Carlson. He only had the clothes on his back and a small pocket New Testament in his pocket. Well, in that time, the rebels came. And then they came, came to Wasolo, and by that time they were glad to have a doctor because they had wounded, you know, several of their people wounded. And there was a Catholic mission there at Yakoma, so they also took the uh, the priests from there. And I understand that they were treated very badly. Okay, but then they took them and they left them all off at a, a Catholic station. Obviously, for Lois and the kids and others, not knowing where he was and if he was alive or dead was very difficult. But we didn't know where, where Paul was. All we knew, we found out that, you know, he'd been taken. We didn't know where, where or if he, we heard a lot of gunshots. And so we didn't know who had been killed or wounded or anything like that. After a few days, the family flew to Bangui, Central African Republic, to wait. And then they flew us in a small plane down to Bangui, and that's where we stayed then. News was sporadic about Dr. Paul, and occasionally they'd get radio reports, and a few letters did manage to reach Lois that somehow had gotten out. He was then sent to Bondo, a Catholic mission about 100 miles east, and then on October 23rd, he was sent to Stanleyville. 
During his time of imprisonment, he treated numerous Simba rebels that had been injured in battle, as well as numerous other prisoners that had been beaten and tortured by the rebels. He too endured beatings at the hands of the rebels, yet persevered with his ongoing medical treatments and positive spirit to those around him. We didn't hear about what, if he, you know, if he was alive or not, until he got down to Stanleyville, I think. And there, 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 they had the um, consulate. That's it. And we had heard that he had been captured. With all the news, then that's when we found out that Paul had been taken. And they, some, I guess, some of the rebels had been coming through that. Uh, area where the uh, Catholic mission was, where Paul had been held. I guess he was out outside or something, so they saw this, you know, white man out there. They put a name on him that he was a, a spy and a mercenary and all of those things. By late November, there was news that he was accused of being a major in the U.S. Air Force and a spy and was to be executed along with several others. It was November 18th. Several of the prisoners, including Dr. Carlson, were taken to the center of town to the Lumumba Monument, where prior executions had occurred. He leaned to one of his fellow prisoners and said, I'm going to die today. Please make sure this gets to Lois. And he slipped his pocket New Testament to his friend. Fortunately, after being beaten and a call from the Prime Minister of Kenya to the rebel leader, the execution was called off and rescheduled for the 21st. The execution was then delayed again until the 23rd. They had him held with several others, with some of the consulate, and then there were two men, young men, that were there, PACs, their conscientious objectors. So they were held, and there's, but then they take them back to the hotel, and then they take them out another day and, and threaten them, and that's where it went. That triggered various heads of state throughout the world to appeal to the head of the rebels, Christophe Benier, and ultimately President Lyndon Johnson decided to provide equipment and supplies for a rescue. On the 19th, all the Belgian and American prisoners were moved to a hotel, about 235 in total. On November 24th, the Belgian paratroopers dropped from the sky to free the hostages. I'll let Ted Erickson, then a 14-year-old boy who was in Leopoldville, tell the story as he remembers it. So there we were with a camp cot in our dining room, and we knew that any day this week, the mercenaries would be flying up to um, Kisangani, and we were uh, had great confidence that they would make short work of the rebels that were there. A couple of days later, the news started to come back. The rumors fly fast around Kinshasa in those days, although nobody had telephones. Everybody always seemed to know what was going on. And we heard that Paul Carlson had died as the fighting was going on. My dad later heard from one of the Mennonite Paxmen, PAX, the uh, conscientious objectors who were doing service in the Congo instead of fighting in the Vietnam War, that had been with Paul Carlson together, imprisoned with the rebels. That when the firing started, uh, when the rebels realized that the mercenaries were landing and were going to be attacking them, they rounded up all the prisoners and just uh, began uh, at one point 
shouting, uh, fire, firing uh, indiscriminately. So the prisoners all um, dispersed. They all ran as best they could to take cover. And Paul Carlson and a group of guys ran to a nearby house just off the central square. And uh, they were climbing onto the little porch on the front of the house, a concrete two, three steps up, and then a concrete porch, maybe 12 by 12, with low walls on the sides made of that kind of perforated brick, concrete blocks, to let the air flow through. One of the Paxmen, whose name I think was Gene, told my dad that he had reached down to, to grab Paul Carlson and help him up over the wall when Paul was struck with a bullet, which is essentially a random bullet. You know, it wasn't, there was nobody right there shooting at them. It was just, he just happened to be hit and uh, went limp and he pulled him in and found that he had died. The operation was over rather quickly. As Ted shared, as the prisoners were scattering and looking for shelter from the mayhem, several saw a house with a small porch with a walled enclosure. They headed to climb over the wall. Dr. Carlson lifted his colleague over the wall to safety, then he tried to climb over. His colleague reached over the wall to help pull him up when he was shot. Here's Lois's story of the paratroopers' rescue mission. They were held in this one big hotel. And then they uh, got him out and put him in this great big square, you know, threatened to shoot him and all that sort of thing. But it wasn't until, yeah, the planes were coming over, I guess, somebody let off a shot and that started shooting. And so then all the prisoners just, you know, scattered and looked for uh, shelter. And so, uh, you know, it just complete chaos so then when the, the airplanes of course left and everything and then and uh, they started you know finding out so i don't know how many were killed over there you know it was just it was random shooting because they weren't looking for anybody they were just you know one one shot set them all off and then they found out that paul and this other missionary had fled and were climbing onto a porch that had a, what do you call it, a railing around it. And uh, Chuck went over and reached, up, reached back to pull Paul up, and uh, he dropped some, a bullet and hit him. It didn't take long for the news to reach Lois and her family that Dr. Paul Carlson had been killed. The body was flown to Leopoldville, the capital, along with many of the other Americans that had been killed in the rescue mission. They were put in a hangar, and Ted's father, Dan Erickson, went to the airport to identify the body. After the shock of the news, Lois contacted Dr. Paul's family in the U.S. about where he should be buried. And they said their choice would have been, would be to have him buried in Congo, but they said, it's your decision. So Paul Carlson never came to the camp cot in our house. Instead, my dad was asked to go to Anjili Airport, the, the main airport in Leopoldville, to identify the body of Paul Carlson if he could. The U.S. Embassy was involved in this, of course, at this time, since Paul Carlson had become really an international celebrity through this process of being imprisoned. 
So Dad went out, and since we had met the Carlsons, he said, yeah, this, uh, he knew who he was and, and recognized him easily. His body was then moved um, to a morgue at the Catholic University Lovanium, which is out north of Kinshasa, out in the, on a ridge of hills that surrounds the city. And there they had a morgue. It was the only morgue in the city, and that was where they were going to embalm him and, and get him ready. And so he was there for a few days, and during which time they were making arrangements for the funeral, uh, which eventually was going to be held in Karawa, according to Lois's wishes. And so Dad was asked to accompany the body up to there. Well, we had to get it from the morgue to the Ndolo Airport, which is where MAF flew out of and other smaller charter operations flew from. And Dad uh, got a pickup and said, Ted, I need your help. We can go up and pick up the casket and take it to Ndolo. So I climbed in the back of the pickup, and there was somebody else with us. And we rode in the back of the pickup up to the up to the top of the hill and uh, found the morgue, loaded the casket into the truck, and drove it to Ndolo Airport, where we left it in a hangar for the overnight until Dad left the next day. The body was flown up country to Gemina to be transported by truck the 50 miles to Karawa at the Missionary Cemetery. Lois and the kids were flown from Bangui, Central African Republic, to Gemina to then attend the funeral at Karawa. It was decided that we'd you know, fly over and land at Gemina. We got towards Gemina. It was all covered with cloud, and so the pilots couldn't see where to land. And just during that dilemma, all of a sudden, the cloud parted, and then we got to go down. The death of Dr. Paul Carlson was international news. He was on the front cover of Life magazine in early December 1964. The same with Time magazine. Every major newspaper in the world had articles and photos of the Stanleyville paratrooper mission and also photos of Dr. Carlson, thanks to the Life magazine photographer from several months prior. There's even a city park that's named in his honor in Culver City, California. So with all the trauma and stress of several months of not knowing about her husband and the finality of his death and burial, she decided to stay in Africa for a few months. I was in no condition to go back. I was, uh, I just had, had had so much, so much stress. And, uh, and I thought to go back to the States and, and I knew the news, the news, news people would be after me right away. I wanted to be with people and of course our families wanted to see us. But I felt I, I didn't want to be somewhere where People were asking me questions all the time. And so everybody that I was with knew what, I, what we'd all been going through. And so that was a quiet place for me, so a quiet time. Upon her return to the U.S., she decided to write a book about her husband's life. The title of the book is Monganga Paul. This means My Dr. Paul in Lingala. You can buy it on Amazon. Ted Erickson shares hearing firsthand only weeks after the hostages were released of the horrible treatment by the rebels. It was a family with, uh, I think, at least four boys, maybe five boys. 
they all had very pronounced bowl haircuts, um, but they had seen their father mutilated and killed in front of them all uh, by the rebels. And uh, to hear their story was quite, um, even now, it moves me to great, great sorrow and pity. And I wonder what happened, what, what became of those young men. They were from ages like something like 13 or 14, my age, down to about a five-year-old. But the horror of what they had seen. The other person I remember very clearly was Helen Rosevere, who was a, a British doctor. And she was one of those battle axe missionaries uh, in the mold of some of the other ones we, we know who are afraid of nothing and out there in the bush in the Congo on their own and they take no guff from anybody and they get the job done. And that's the kind of woman she was, quite a remarkable person. Uh, she also wrote her story in a book. She was traumatized and, and uh, tortured in a huge variety of ways, which she had no qualms about describing in detail uh, in front of this American uh, or missionary audience, but a woman of great faith and strength. And I'll never forget her courage as she stood there and told her story. She took no guff from anybody. And uh, I'm sure there were some of those young rebels who were ashamed of themselves when she was done upbraiding them. A few years later, a group of men decided to further build upon his life and legacy and form the Paul Carlson Foundation. Dr. Carlson had a vision for an abandoned hospital at a station called Loco. And we had heard about this hospital that had built, that been built at Loco by the Belgians, but they had, when they had to flee, they just, you know, left everything. And so we looked at it and Paul said, oh, if we could only get that. But he said that would make the medical work overbalance all the other work. That's, if we could just, you know, have that hospital because all brick. I mean, it was built really nice. And I think at the time it, it even had beds in it and I guess it had been even medications and everything. But the paratroopers had used it and it had been used, but they had indoor plumbing. And so I, after Paul died and they started talking about some work over there, I thought that was Paul's dream. And so that kind of got things started. Some of the leaders of the Covenant Mission met with the president and negotiated that this unused hospital be deeded to the Paul Carlson Foundation. And so then we went down to Kinshasa, Leopoldville, whatever it was, and met with, was it Mabutu? Uh, on his yacht. And uh, he said we could, you know, he did the, you know, see that we got the property. Well, it took some pushing by Art Lundblad to get it, but uh, apparently he got the paper signed. And in 1968, the ribbon cutting was held, and ever since then, medical services, agricultural services, economic development, and the gospel has been impacting tens of thousands of Congolese in the area. What a fantastic legacy.
So after the retaking of Stanleyville by the Belgian paratroopers, the Simbas scattered, not without retaliating by killing many others just because. The civil war continued. Even Che Guevara, the notorious communist rebel that had wreaked havoc in South America, came over from Cuba with soldiers to support Laurent Kabila and help the Simbas retake Congo. He left after seven months. Eventually, the rebellion was quashed. November 24, 1964 was indeed a tragic day. It is often referred to as the Congo Massacre. Dr. Carlson was killed, as were many others, including women and children. One mission group, Africa Inland Mission, lost 14 people that day, devastating their work with the Congolese and destroying numerous families. While history focuses on the paratroopers dropping in to rescue the hostages, the death of 144 people during the attempt, and how the world reacted to the news of the mission and Dr. Carlson's death, I see it a bit differently. I think there was a silver lining. It was actually a good day for the freed hostages, obviously, and Congo, obviously, and the world, as they pushed back communism from taking over the country with that assault on Stanleyville. As I've studied and read about the history of Congo, and especially the politics, I am more and more convinced that November 24, 1964, was a defining moment that stemmed back Russia and China and communism's push on the continent to ultimately try to take it over. That would have had huge implications worldwide in the mid-1960s had Russia and China gotten control of Congo and then spread over the continent. And that point is not stressed enough. With Dr. Paul Carlson being the poster child of the hostages and rebels, when he was threatened with execution, that triggered President Lyndon Johnson to push for the daring rescue mission. Had that not happened, and the rebels advanced to Leopoldville, communism would have had a foothold in a strategic country in the middle of the African continent. Who knows what would have happened in world history had communism taken over most of the continent? Would Africans be speaking Russian or Chinese instead of French, Portuguese, or English? This is just my theory, but I don't think history has considered the turning point against communism being that infamous paratrooper rescue mission. Maybe the daring commandos, Dr. Paul Carlson being the face of the situation, and President Johnson's gutsy call to free the hostages did more to bring long-term world peace than history gives them credit for. So let's go back to the victory over the Simbas. With the rebels no longer a threat, Chombe became a hero. He got Belgium to pay Congo for various mining rights that they'd taken earlier, which brought in revenue to the country. So with the next parliamentary election, he won handily. Kasavubu, the president, realized the threat to his own power, so summarily dismissed Chombe and replaced him with his own lackey. Wow, some things never change. This is when Mobutu made his move. As commander of the army, he called all his top brass to his compound. They all pledged their allegiance. The date? November 24, 1965, one year to the day from when Dr. Carlson was killed. They read a communique on the national radio stating that he was taking over. The coup was done. Not a shot had been fired. Four of the country's biggest players had had their own finest hour during these early years, Lumumba, Mobutu, Chombe, and Kasabubu. But it was Joseph Desiré Mobutu that would walk away with the prize. I'd like to thank Ted Erickson for sharing his experience as a young boy dealing in the aftermath of the Congo massacre. And also Gordy Anderson for some great insight to Dr. Paul Carlson's life in a high school English paper he wrote in 1965 and shared with me. 
And also thanks to James Edstrom for his family story, Escaping the Rebels, in 1964. But my biggest thank you for contributing to this episode is Mrs. Lois Carlson Bridges, making herself available to have me ask questions to reopen a very dark chapter in her life to bring the story of her husband to life for me and you, the listener, is so much appreciated. I got to visit her twice in the past few months to finalize her story and enjoyed so much having her share her story from 57 years ago. She also showed me her scrapbook with magazines and newspaper clippings about Dr. Paul Carlson's imprisonment, life story, and the fateful day of November 24, 1964. She also gave me a signed copy of the book she wrote called Monganga Paul, about the life of Paul Carlson. But the most precious moment for me was seeing and holding and flipping through the pocket New Testament that he had carried with him during his imprisonment. A fellow prisoner, Gene Bergman, saw him fall and retrieved it from his body and ensured its return to Lois. Dr. Carlson had used it the night before in a prayer meeting when he read the verses of 2 Timothy 4, verses 17 to 18, to his fellow captives. But the Lord stood by me and lent me strength, so that I might be his instrument in making the full proclamation of the gospel for the whole pagan world to hear. And thus I was rescued out of the lions, or Simba's, jaws. And the Lord will rescue me from every attempt to do me harm, and to keep me safe until his heavenly reign begins. I flipped through the New Testament and saw his handwritten notes comments in his last will and testament. I also read his daily journal, written in the margins, which often were just a word or two to memorialize that day's activities. I was holding a real part of history that to Dr. Carlson was his rock, his anchor, and his hope during his time in captivity by the Simba rebels. His entry for the 21st of November was when he was to be taken to the city square and be executed. November 22nd's entry had one word, peace. November 23rd said one word, peace. And the November 24th entry was blank. Though a tragic day for him and his family, the legacy of his life lives on through the Paul Carlson Foundation and partnership, having served tens of thousands of people medically, agriculturally, economically, and spiritually since 1968. When Paul and Lois were commissioned to missionary service in June 1962, they chose their life first to be Joshua 1.16. All that thou commandest, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. No doubt the day he entered heaven, he was welcomed with, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And to Lois, his widow, for her testimony and support of his legacy all these years, I say to you, it has been a joy to get to spend time with you and experience the story. So to summarize this episode of independence until President Mobutu took over, the first phase of the First Republic ran from June 30, 1960 to January 17, 1961. The second phase of the First Republic period ran from January 1961 to 1963, when the Katanga province, rich in mining natural resources, seceded from the country, only to rejoin later. The third phase of the First Republic period ran from 1964 when a rebellion broke out in the East and spread out over half the country. Control was finally regained, and then the thought that stability would ensue, only to have Joseph Mobutu pull off a coup d'etat in November 1965. He ruled for 32 years. His period of being a dictator was called the Second Republic. The first five years of Congo's independence saw a civil war, 
ethnic pogroms, two coup d'etats, several uprisings, and several government leaders, two of which were murdered. There was a constitutional crisis, two secessions of Protestants covering about a third of the country, and the imprisonment, escape, arrest, and murder of the prime minister. Then the Simba Rebellion that led to numerous deaths, and particularly that of Dr. Paul Carlson. Yet, this just scratches the surface of the events during the first five years of the independent Congo. But now with Joseph Desiré Mobutu, commander of the army, and now self-imposed president of the country, the period in Congo's history called the Second Republic would now commence. Does he bring stability and prosperity to this fledgling country after five years of total chaos? Is he the savior that people have been looking for and need? The answer will be told in episode three of the series on the history of Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninga Nangai, Tikala Malamu. My friends, stay well. <laughs>